Hey everyone, before we start this week's episode, I want to share a little word from our proud partner, 80.LV. 80.LV is the best place for game developers, digital artists, animators, video game enthusiasts, CGI, and visual effects talents to learn about new workflows, tools, and share their work. It's a great resource to evolve and develop your pipeline. Go check them out. They're amazing and awesome. If you want to support the podcast, go to our patreon.com forward slash game dev unchained. Any support is greatly appreciated. We are giving access to early raw episodes ahead of schedule, guest updates, as well as other perks that we are working to grow the community and test out new show ideas. If you want to chat, to other listeners, go to our Discord, which you can find on www.gamedevunchained.com. Do you like free stuff? Well, enter into our January raffle. It is open to anyone that shares a link, posts their favorite episodes, and tagging us. This month, Claus Peterson from episode 120 from Bedtime Digital Games are giving away three of their games so if you are interested go ahead and share on any of our social media outlets like facebook or twitter okay that about wraps it let's get into this week's episode ladies and gentlemen boys and girls welcome back to that comfy spot in front of your podcast listening device this is larry charles one half of the game dev unchained podcast team and i'm here by myself Yes, that's right. I don't have a... Oh, wait, never mind. I lied. I do have a co-host this week, but it's not Brandon, I promise. Helping me host this podcast is the person who designed the logo for Honey Nut Cheerios. Hey, as a side gig, here I am co-hosting Game Dev Unche. Welcome to this episode. Please also welcome our special guest, Gary Nissebaum. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm really looking forward to this, and I'm looking forward to uh, interacting with you and your audience. So thank you for inviting me. Good morning. Good morning. morning. So uh, this is the part of the podcast where we ask our guests to introduce yourself to our audience, what you've done, where you are, where you're going. Well, I am an attorney. We have a a law firm of about uh, seven to nine lawyers. Uh, We're in New Jersey, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, and Texas, but we do work in other states as well. And our entire focus essentially is business law, commercial law. We handle um, basically most anything that a business needs, even a a small startup to a multinational. Most of that stuff we'll do uh, in litigation or transactions. The reason I'm on the podcast today is that over the last 10 years, our practice has moved into the digital realm. And we have really gotten involved in very cutting edge representation of uh, people who um, have developed video games, very famous video games that you would know the name of. They would be recognizable not just to people on the inside, such as your audience, but people on the street. Uh, Apps, video games, uh, entertainment law, film, uh, music, book writing, things like that. We just negotiated a major New York Times bestseller. We just negotiated a major film deal. And um, so we're involved in this world, but we're involved in it generally from the digital perspective. In other words, how the convergence of the digital world and the entertainment world come together. 
And uh, so I thought it would be really interesting to kind of talk about that with your audience, since that's sort of where your audience is situated as well. Um, and just so you know, the name of my firm is Nissenbaum Law Group, and uh, my website is gdnlaw.com. Awesome. Uh, Gary, uh, while you guys are looking at that, I kind of want to have a question regarding um, indie developers, right? One of the first things that indie developers or developers in general, when they go into business, is worrying about the legal part of it. And uh, most developers don't know anything. <laughs> we flip open the uh, legal for idiots book as a start. But uh, one of the things that we deal first with is intellectual property, uh, you know, coming up with our own ideas. And uh, what exactly is the responsibility of, you know, having IP? What is an IP? And uh, how much of uh, it do we actually need to do outside of just creating it? I want you to start with this concept because I think this will help orient us. Okay. Um, when you go for um, a health examination with your doctor uh, and they ask you to get blood work done, the person who draws your blood is a technician. Mm. Uh, they've been taught how to uh, get a tourniquet around your arm, how to draw the blood, where, what kind of label to put on the test tube, and how to send it in. They're taught a specific set of uh, activities, and they perform those activities by rote with very little deviation. Compare that to the hematologist, the physician who's a blood expert, who actually understands the diseases of blood, understands what normal looks like, understands what these blood values that come back should be. That's not a technician. That is somebody who is interpreting the data and understanding what it's telling you and using intuitive insight, perhaps even creativity to marshal years and years of understanding to not just speak the language, but actually speak the language in a way that's intelligent and actually says something. That is the difference between going on the Internet and getting a copyright for yourself or getting a trademark for yourself, or incorporating for yourself with some kind of stripped-down site that basically just puts the paperwork through and makes oblique references to the fact that they're overseen by lawyers and they were created by lawyers, and which is all nonsense since they're not saying they're representing you. Uh, th those are technicians. And the, the major mistake that people make, and many of my developer clients unfortunately have made, is that they um, don't make the distinction between filing a copyright, filing a trademark, filing a corporation, and understanding what the documentation should say, understanding what they should choose among different options, and understanding what's in their best interest. Mm -hmm. um, so let's start with that. And, and if there's one thing you take away from today, Take that away from today. It's not a. It, that's the most important thing. Now let's go to your question, which is, what are these items, and how does that concept apply? Well, when you start a business, um, generally speaking, you're choosing to be a corporation, or a limited liability company, or a partnership, or a sole proprietorship, and there are different um, legal ramifications to each one in terms of how your how your revenue is taxed mm -hmm. and in terms of what your liability 
uh, potential is, whether you can use it as a liability shield or not. Copyright, same idea, which is you are registering with the government the expression of an idea. And so you're getting the um, benefit of protecting the expression of that idea. But again, the question is, what is protectable and what's not? Whether that that um, copyright registration actually is an infringing application on somebody else's previous copyright, and there's some kind of crossed wires as to whether you should be even getting that copyright. All those things are things that need to be looked at. Trademark is not the expression of an idea. Trademark is how you are viewed in the marketplace, how you are represented to the consumer. And the question there is, is your trademark infringing or not? So again, this concept that, yes, you can register for a trademark on your own and basically make the application, and the government might even give you the trademark, it doesn't mean it's worth anything. Because if a search was not done properly to find out whether you're infringing, if the elements of that trademark are, are such that even though they're, they're registered, um, they were registered improvidently, it doesn't help you and it doesn't get you anywhere. It gives you the false sense of having accomplished something. So these, these terms basically protect you only insofar as you understand the nuance of what that protection entails. Gotcha. That's probably one of my biggest problems is just thinking that like I have the confidence or I, yeah, I know enough about this for where I would go and try to do it myself. Because one of my worries is because I don't know enough about law or legal that if I do just try to Google a lawyer or Google someone who knows more than me, that they can just tell me anything and then charge me $900 and I just pay it because I don't know that that's actually what I'm supposed to be paying or not. You know, do you have people who actually come to you in complete ignorance and you know, just trust in good faith that uh, they're going to get the best service for the pricing? Because that's probably one of the biggest hangups I would see commonly in our industry is people getting started, not being familiar with the law, also being tentative about trusting somebody for paying the full price or the very high price. You know what I mean? You know, it's, it's, it's really the central challenge that I have, which is when you go to a lawyer, um, you bring with you whether consciously or unconsciously, the baggage of a culture that distrusts lawyers. Mm -hmm. They don't think lawyers are criminals, but they think lawyers are on the outer edge of criminality, that somehow they are ripping people off, that they're creating something out of nothing, that they're creating disputes that shouldn't exist, that, that it should be much simpler to just get things done. They're overcomplicating it and all these different stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But your audience is very well aware that stereotypes are not always accurate. Amen. I mean, I don't have to give you examples of that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, and so I ask that your audience not engage in that two-dimensional thinking when it comes okay. to hiring a lawyer. When you hire a lawyer, I'll give you some ideas that I would have if okay. I were not a lawyer and I wanted to hire a lawyer, what would I be looking for? If I had to speak to my cousin who's not a lawyer and he needed a lawyer out somewhere where I don't practice, what would I tell him? Here's what I would tell him. I would say, go on the internet and see if this person has handled cases like yours. Um, see if they even mention it on their website or Facebook or social media. Um, that's number one. Number two, if you start seeing people who are negative about this lawyer, if you start seeing people who are bad mouthing the lawyer, ignore it mm -hmm. unless it's an avalanche. 
But if it's just one or two people who are saying this is the worst law office I've ever dealt with, they ripped me off, assume that that's an outlier and that person has an agenda. It may or may not be true, but it's, it's fairly likely given the way things work. So forget about that. Mm-hmm. Number three, um, when you speak to them, focus in on how they will be paid. Um, the concept of how much is this going to cost? Is it going to be flat fee? Is it going to be hourly billable? Is it going to be contingent? Those are those are difficult questions to have because in this society, one of the things people never want to talk about, they'll talk about their sex life before they do this, is how much money they make and how much money they have, right? But it's truly one of the key things you have to discuss with the lawyer. So there are no misunderstandings. You think the lawyer said that this is going to cost under $1,000. The lawyer said, I'm going to try to keep it under $1,000. Those are two different things. Yeah. So get into the weeds on that and have, a, have, a, have an open discussion about it. And the most important thing, the last one, the one I really want to emphasize is this. If you can't get a straight answer out of that lawyer, to basic questions if they're using terminology that you obviously wouldn't understand or because it's not something in your lexicon or they're, they're, they're sort of moving around the answer, but they're not really giving you the answer or they're ignoring or they're over, speaking over you or whatever it is. If you're not communicating with this person in that first discussion, assume that's going to continue. Yeah. <laughs> assume that you will not be communicating with this person forever. And the problem with that is that you are placing some of the most important things you'll ever be involved in in your life in that person's hands. And you have to be able to communicate. It's not a question of what law school they went to. It's not a question of how many years of training they have. It's very hard for you to evaluate that on a first call. It's more, is this a person you can deal with on a human level? And if you can't, if you don't have a sense that they empathize with you, um, move on. That's my feeling. Uh, well. I want to also go into how I'm a game developer. And like you said, now that I've tried the Google things, it didn't work out. I'm being overwhelmed. I'm finally (laughs) going to you as a lawyer or any lawyers in particular. How do I go about protecting my IP or my company or my game? What's the first steps here? Yeah. Let me I let me get specific on this because I'm going to I've, I've represented so many people that do development or involved in this world in some way. Um, I can tell you the thing that I constantly hear that's incorrect. I constantly hear they want to patent their their <laughs> game. They want to patent their app. Um, and I, I am constantly in the posi- position of saying, yeah, it's possible that you might have a patent, but it is unlikely. Um, A more likely scenario is what you have is a copyright issue. So let's get that straight out. Talk about copyrights first and foremost, and then let's also talk about some of the more esoteric protections. If If you have code and the code has been developed by you, it is analogous to you writing a book. It's analogous to you uh, recording a song. The fact is that that code is an expression of your art. It's an expression of of what you are, of ideas that you've come up with and that you're expressing in a certain way. That is copyright. Mm-hmm. Um, so focus in on copyright. That's number one. Um, number two is focus. After you do that, discuss 
trademark, licensing, assignment, agreements, patent, all that other stuff as well, and see if anything else applies. Number three, be sure you have the rights that you think you have. Because just because nobody's caught you yet doesn't mean that you actually have the right to do what you're doing. So it go you have to get into the weeds in terms of what does the license say? The license that you are using to um, create that code, uh, the the person you're you're going to be selling this to, what will they need to? Uh, have rights in in order to buy it or to license it? Will it be assigned? Will it be a sale? All of these questions. And of course, if you're a developer, if you're working for someone else um, and it's not your own company, what is your independent contractor agreement saying about the things that you're creating? You may think that you're doing this on your own time, therefore you own it. The, the contract that you signed might say differently. So those are really the the questions. Number one, two things, the intellectual property protections we talked about. And the other is your right to utilize your own invention, your own expression, um, your own unique signature of what this game or app should look like. Do you have the right to do that that you think you have? You were mentioning before assignments and, and the license of an IP. Can you explain more what the differences are? Well, you know, this is really night and day. Um, and if you're not familiar with the difference between assignment and license, I urge you to focus in on this when you're when you're talking to your lawyer, basically, um, as well as when you are seeing these terms in agreements that you're signing or that you're being asked to sign. So there's a lot of differences, but I want to focus in on two just so that we at least have some kind of orientation on this. OK. Um, what rights are being retained? That is a critical question in a license. One generally retains the rights to the intellectual property and then obtains a royalty, which is a payment for the use of those rights. So you, there's a robust, there's a strong retention of intellectual property rights in a typical license, not all, but typical. However, in an assignment, you are giving away your intellectual property to one extent or another. So a royalty may not be appropriate in that situation. You may be looking at a lump sum payment for all right title interest. So it's, it's, this, it's the difference between you renting an apartment from me and you buying a condominium from me. You buy the condo, it's yours. I have no more rights in it. You rent the apartment, well, we have a continuing relationship and when the lease is over, I get it back. Mm. Um, another distinction is time frame. So let's focus on that, which is a license is normally temporary. It's not forever. You're renting that apartment, but at some point you're going to move out and I get it back. An assignment normally is permanent. You bought it, you got it, it's yours. So understand that if you see though, if your listeners see license assignment, you start seeing those terms. Do not assume they're interchangeable. They're almost polar opposites. Well, you were mentioning royalty. And I've always associated royalty with anything that is uh, 
more than breaking even. <laughs> but it sounds like any types of payment for whatever you worked on, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Let me tell you uh, some of the problems your listeners are going to encounter with royalties um, as a general proposition. Let's start with just a general proposition of how your listeners should be framing this issue. Um, the problem with a license royalty, meaning money you get for having given someone the right to use something that you own, some intellectual property you own, is that it is reactive. That's the key. And by reactive, what I mean is that you're giving someone the right to use your intellectual property. You're not going to generate any money until they use it, but you don't control when they use it. They're going to use it as part of what they are doing, whatever that is. And you're probably going to be a part of a larger whole. Therefore, you're waiting for money to come in without really understanding how it's going to be used in, in the, not in the abstract, but in, in the actual real world, what they're going to do, when they're going to do it. You're not going to know when the money comes into them. So if you don't know when the money comes into them, and you don't know how much came into them, how do you know what your percentage is supposed to be? So if the money's a question mark, your percentage of the question mark is a question mark. So this whole thing is backward. You are expecting money to come to you without any way of truly understand, of truly controlling the, the flow of that money, number one, and number two, without even un being able to visualize and know uh, when the money comes in, much less whether it's being calculated properly. So this is one of the key problems with royalties. And it's, and it's one of the things, again, that I want your listeners to focus on, which is if you're being given a royalty arrangement and you're being given all kinds of uh, vague promises, mm -hmm. um, if you don't have the right to a royalty audit, you are not serving your interest. What's, uh, what's a royalty audit, though? The royalty audit is the key. That is the that's where the rubber meets the road in this whole area. Essentially, a royalty audit means I'm not, I the licensor. I'm not going to be as reactive. I'm going to be able to go in and ask to look at the licensees' books and records. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two. I'm going to to be able to see. Um, what their gross revenues are and how they're calculating the royalty payments off those gross revenues. I'm going to be able to set up a, a means of settling disputes so that if, if I think I should have gotten $1,000 and what you're giving me is $100, I don't have to go to court to have a full-blown um, lawsuit over that, I, we have a way of, in the first instance, just dis, uh, resolving the dispute through something called alternate dispute resolution. Uh, people know this more along the lines of, of something called mediation or arbitration. If that's what I want to do, it's quick, it can be confidential, and, and it's scaled down. It's not like you know hitting the whole thing with a sledgehammer. Okay. If it doesn't work, uh, you, can, you can sometimes 
make a provision that allows you to uh, go to court if you can't if you try to mediate it for you know one shot two weeks let's say it doesn't work you have the right to go to court or you could say that you're just using alternate dispute resolution and that's it um, but that's another point that you have to to negotiate um, you also uh, in the digital world you know, are you are you seriously going to have your hire a CPA and have them physically go and fly out <laughs> to their place of business and look at literal books, you know, and records? I don't think so. So what you want is something called now. electronic access. You want electronic access, which which would be a secure way of you going in and looking at their books and records that is non-public and that has a series of dual authentication. Um, and also you would, you would focus on the issue of how much, uh, there's, who's going to bear the costs of this, um, how many times you can do it a year. Cause obviously if you do it every week, you're going to shut them down. They'll always be responding. <laughs> to you, right. Um, and also, uh, limits of the information that you're allowed to look at. Uh, you, you obviously should not be uh, looking at the gross uh, salary of the CEO. What, what, what does that have to do with you? Uh, you know, you have to, you, there have to be limits. My point is that it's focused, it's, it's explained clearly, and this is one of the best arguments for why you need to have a robust contract and not something you just download from the internet for free and steal from somebody, but have, have an attorney essentially put this together because it has to be practical. You have to go through with your attorney. Okay, now if I want to look at these royalty statements and I want to verify them, what are the 10 things that I'd want to do? And they have to all be in this contract. Well, I have a quick question, uh, and this is more of a funny question, but I just want to know, have you actually had to, like for one of your clients, and you don't have to name, but have they ever brought in any of these like internet contracts that they've had with external people that they've tried to work with and get you to like help them get out of the situation or help enforce it? Yeah. You mean, you mean have they ever sort of downloaded a contract for free? It's, it's all screwed. Yeah, the, the answer up, is yeah. constantly. <laughs> it, it, it's not one time; it's constant. And, and I and I want to give you sort of a, a a way I see the world in terms of why I think that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in a society where if I want to buy a coat, I I pull it up on the screen and I click, and I don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. I I don't know the quality of it because I haven't touched it, I haven't put it on, I haven't tried, I haven't done anything. I'm just clicking on a picture, and so we're trained to sort of suspend our disbelief and assume that a coat is a coat, um, a car is a car, and, and not to actually, as consumers, really dig into it and, under, and, and, and do comparisons that are real. The comparisons we do is how many people have rated it highly, which is not a real <laughs> comparison, right? And, and they do that with lawyers, too, where they're saying, you know, I have a contract, it's three pages, I have another contract that's 13 pages, I think the 13-page contract is probably better. Uh, you know, I have a contract that was used by this company. I know uh, I respect the company. So that's probably a good contract. That's all nonsense. And there's a reason why it's nonsense. It's not that the contract is necessarily written poorly. It may be written very well. It's that every contract has to be um, focused on the transaction at hand. There are times when I'll do a license agreement that is um, giving tremendous rights to the licensor, the one granting the license, the audit, the revenue stream, the percentages. I mean, unbelievable rights. And there are others 
where I represent the licensee, mm-hmm. the one who's getting the license, where I write that same contract in reverse. And now the percentages are lower. The times somebody can come in and do the audit are less. What they can see is less. Everything is marginalized because I'm representing one side or the other. So if you just take a license agreement that my law firm, Nissenbaum Law Group, did, mm. and you don't know who I was representing when I did that contract, yeah. that's ridiculous. <laughs> you have to understand the play before you go on the ice. And so none of that makes sense. That's why you need somebody to kind of customize these contracts. Well, let's swing it back to royalties then, because I actually I want to challenge you a little bit and also help the audience. But what are some of like the basic, maybe like three or four reasons why royalties may usually go underpaid? Because that's something that we definitely need to know how to avoid. Yeah. And and you know what? That's a terrific question, because that's what comes up. You know, that that's where this all ends up is there were errors. It's it's unusual that somebody is committing theft. It's unusual that they're literally just, they know that this number's off and they're just stealing. That's not usually the way it goes. The way it usually goes is they, they, they have to run their business and they hire a part-time bookkeeper who just more or less puts together the numbers, doesn't really understand what he or she is, is doing in terms of what this thing actually does. And they just make errors. Mm. So the first one is math errors. Uh, misreported sales, underreported sales, misinterpretation, all that stuff that happens when you delegate to somebody who delegates to somebody who's part time and doesn't really know what they're doing, but is, you know, trying their best. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing is you have to um, get the calculation and understand how it's being done and just see if the numbers add up. Second, misreported sales. Uh, is I think the the second thing, which is um, again, you know, they tried their best, but they just either had tremendous success, and so there's there's sales all over the place, and it's just overwhelming their system, or the opposite, which is they have a whole infrastructure put in place, and the sales are are bleak, they're not good, and so they've moved on to the next product, and yeah, they're kind of you know capturing the sales, but they're not really focused on it either way. Okay. They're misrepresented, misreported, excuse me, um, miscoded, all that sort of thing. Um, And also, um, whether there are collateral products that are involved. Um, I mean, we're going to get into this later, I assume. But, you know, if you have a video game, the video game can have um, characters. The characters can then be put into three-dimensional form in uh, in toys, dolls, things like that, t-shirts, apparel. Well, you know, there are collateral revenue streams that are coming through that you, you have to be aware of. It's not just the game. Um, and then I should say number four, <laughs> which I don't think happens a lot, but it happens, which is uh, theft. And I will tell you that the reason your royalty will be um, taken Mm-hmm. Generally, the reason why theft occurs is not that somebody wakes up one morning and says, I'd like to be a criminal today, so I'm going to commit a crime. <laughs> Usually what they do is they justify it to themselves as a loan. Most people, oh. most business owners, what they're doing, I shouldn't say that. The way I should say it is most business owners who do this, which is a very small number of business owners, yeah. obviously, um, 
the way they do it is they 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 have a cash flow crisis. They can't make payroll, but but there's money coming in from an account receivable, and they and if they just have a three day window, they know they can do this. Mm-hmm. And so rather than go to a bank and get a credit line, or maybe they've tried and failed to get a credit line, they will hold back your revenue, hold back your revenue stream so that they have essentially a, a, an interest-free line of credit on your dime, um, pay their payroll, and then hope that that receivable comes in so they can give you your money, which is, you know, whether you call it theft or you call it delay, you know, it's according to which side you're on. But the bottom line is that one of the reasons why a lot of royalty uh, disputes arise over uh, the fact that you're not getting your royalties quickly enough, when you hear that, Generally speaking, if I hear somebody say, I'm getting these, this money, but it's coming to me really late, um, I think cash flow problems. Mm-hmm. Somebody's using my client's money to fund their business inappropriately. Well, is there anything that you can do to like go after somebody for that? Like, I guess really quick, is there, if you well, kind think of know about that it. that's the issue. There's two issues on that. Um, you know, if you, if I were in law school and I was answering uh, an essay question on that, I would tell you about <laughs> breach of contract, uh, misrepresentation, yeah, yeah. fraud, promissory estoppel, and all these other terms that we learn in law school. But having practiced for over 30 years, I can tell you that there's a better answer for that, mm-hmm. which is I can have a a perfectly aligned lawsuit where I really have all the legal doctrines lined up, everything goes my way, and I think I'm going to win. But the cost of bringing that lawsuit exceeds the amount at issue, or at least is a higher percentage of the amount at issue than my client's willing to tolerate. And it's not even legal fees, although legal fees enter into it. It's also if I need a CPA to testify and I got to pay him hourly to testify, you know, just the cost of of the time involved for my client. My client's a developer. That's what they want to be doing. Do they want to spend three years fighting a lawsuit over a $3,000 royalty they didn't get? So the first thing that you have to understand is you can have a right without a remedy. In the, in, you can have a right, which is legal, and the laws of the United States will back it up 100%, but there's no real remedy because the ratio of risk-reward is simply not there. And that's the absolute key to the whole thing. And the second thing, which comes back to something we discussed earlier, but it, it bears repeating, is if you enter into a royalty arrangement with no uh, review of the contract, um, the likelihood is – you will review the contract when you think the contract is breached. <laughs> That's the last time you want to look at the contract. It's like saying that you're going on a 500-mile trip, and the only time you're going to look to see if you have enough gas is when you the car stops because it ran out of gas. And now you look and you say, oh, gee, I guess I should have gotten more gas. Yeah. So you can either get us involved in the front end or the back end. And usually when you get us involved in the back end, it's it's worse better to be prepared on these things so that's really the answer to your question one of the things that uh larry and i often talk about is the music industry because it's an industry that doesn't rely on selling cds as much anymore it's more about you know the usage of their ip or or music obviously right so what's the main difference with that with royalty audits in the music industry versus other uh industries 
Well, first of all, your your listeners, uh, people who are in this world of, of development, really need to understand music licenses. And, and and to the lay people, that would sound like they're incongruous. They're not. Um, these video games have music in them. Uh, apps have music in them. And to some, sometimes my my developer clients literally create their own music. So they're not using people's uh, other people's music. And that music can become uh, a valuable um, asset in and of itself. Um, so you're, you, the question you're asking is absolutely critical. Um, so let's, let, let's just go through two basic concepts. Um, the first is that there are different royalties for different aspects of using music. And you have to understand it's not just one thing. Like if I, if I created this music, I get my royalty and we're done. It's, for example, um, you know, how the music is performed. Is there, is there a royalty on the performance of the music? Are there intellectual property rights in the performance? Are there intellectual property rights in the actual notes of the music, the composition of the notes. That's not the performance. That's different. Are there royalties in the synchronization of the music? Synchronization in this context means that you're adapting a musical score for movies or television, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, you know, the issue in our world is um, digital rights, um, you know, streaming rights and use um, in other digital media. Um, and then, of course, I'll give you one more, which is pretty obvious, and that is lyrics. Uh, I mean, you know, who wrote the lyrics? So uh, I'll tell you that constantly when I have a client come in and we're dealing with musical um, rights and royalties, um, the first question I ask them is who worked on this with you? And they say, generally, I did it myself. And I say, okay, I'm not sure I believe you. So let's talk a little bit about that. Did anybody else write the lyrics? Oh, yeah, somebody else wrote the lyrics. Did anybody else perform this? Yeah, yeah, well, I had my sister and her friend, and they all, yeah, and here we go. So I kind of <laughs> know. I mean, after all, you know, people collaborate on, on, on artistic work. So, yeah, there are people who literally can do it themselves, but it's unusual. Um, so that's the first thing is not to just assume there's one concept of royalty, but to understand that there are subsets of aspects of music that you have to account for. The second thing, which is really interesting, is that in the music world, there are things called PROs. And again, if there's one thing that your listeners walk away from this with, they should walk away with that. Um, PRO, which is a, a performing rights organization. And the concept is that there are – these are not governmental entities. They're not part of the government. But the government recognizes that they exist. The government's not against them. The government uh, understands that they are helping to enforce um, the rights that people have in their intellectual property. And essentially what they do is they – collect royalties for artists who are not you're not capable of finding all the venues where the where your stuff is being played and you're not really capable of calculating royalties which could be you know 50 cents um but 50 cents times a million is a fair number so 
you need these PROs to kind of aggregate the collection and the calculation of your royalties since they're so suboptimal in terms of, of the amount of each one. And I'll give you some examples. You may have heard of some of these uh, ASCAP, uh, BMI, uh, CSAC, GMR. These are these are PROs that are doing this. And if your listeners are generating musical compositions, they're generating music, they should be in touch with one of those. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there's uh, royalties that are um, uh, agreed to by these uh, overarching protocols that are that are national and to some extent international in uh, in scope. Um, and, you know, in addition, there are digital distribution rights that you should be in, that you should be aware of, uh, the laws of the, uh, the federal law has, uh, changed in this area since the 1990s. I mean, basically you have the digital millennium copyright act and digital performance, right. And sound recordings act and, and, a, and a host of other, uh, laws and, and, um, uh, interpretations of those laws that have extended these these concepts to the digital world as well, and that's the 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 next thing I want to talk about, and I really want to focus in on this because this is so important. Mm-hmm. The difference between a sale of your music and a license of your music. Now, if I just said that to ten people walking down the street, and I said, "What is the difference between the sale of music and the license of music?" They would shrug their shoulders and say. I don't know. I think in both instances, the other person gets to use it. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a major difference. And the major difference is something that applies to developers who are using music in their, in their games and in their apps and, and other things. Um, you have to understand that the amount of royalty you will get from a sale is so much less <laughs> than the royalty you will get from a license. I mean, let's go back all the way to the beginning of time, which in this case, I think is the 1980s. Um, (laughs) Right. And we're talking about Bill Gates, (laughs) right? Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. You know, what do they do? (laughs) They go to IBM and Bill Gates's mom has a connection with uh, one of the upper, upper level people at IBM uh, because they both serve on a nonprofit board, I believe. Uh, and I think it was out in California. And Bill Gates, um, who is a teenager at that time, uh, you know, the mom kind of puts it all together and allows him to go and have a meeting at IBM to see what they're doing, what their, what their um, you know, uh, research and development team is putting together. And that's how he's introduced to the mouse. Um, that's how he's introduced to one of the one of the initial operating systems. All the stuff that eventually became Microsoft. He's actually seeing this, and the and they're giving him the king the keys to the kingdom. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that they're just letting him come in and see all this stuff, which should have been absolutely secret. Why did they do that? They did it reportedly because IBM thought the only way to make money is to sell a computer, to sell hardware. It was the only way of making, and that was the way they did it. He came up with the concept of the license. Uh, I don't think he did it alone, but I think he was one of the main people that came up with the idea, I'm going to create Windows. And what Windows is going to be, you're not going to buy Windows. 
you're going to buy a license to use Windows. And the difference is making about $100,000 on buying Windows versus making a few billion dollars on licensing Windows. And so, you know, your listeners should be very, very aware of this already, which is you want royalties on a license. You don't want a sale. So let me ask this, though, because obviously Windows, right, is a huge, well, it ends up becoming something incredibly huge. And so like licensing Windows, I get. But what if you're thinking that you have a product or even you only have the reach to tell maybe only 10 or 15 people about something or the amount of people that you think that what you're working on can affect is very small. Is that a situation where maybe having a sale is better than a license? Or do you feel like just in general, in any case, it's always better to try to prioritize the license versus the sale? Interesting question. Um, and again, here we go. And this is really my profession is there's two ways of answering it. One way okay. is the way you'd answer it in law school. And the <laughs> other way is the way you'd answer it with some experience having dealt with this. So let's start with the difference between those two answers. Okay. You know, on a law school essay, I would say that there's almost no scenario where I would rather sell my intellectual property um, rather than than um, rather than uh, license it, unless the sale was going to generate an enormous number. <laughs> and if the number was off the charts, then obviously I'd sell it. And and there there's a name for that. It's basically called mergers and acquisitions. Basically, that's how businesses get sold. And you see this all over the place with um, different um, sale, sales where Amazon buys something or Google buys something, and they're buying it for not just a few million, but sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's a sale, not not a license, obviously. So that's an example. So the issue would be, gee, how much money you're getting and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, um, the way I'd answer that for a client is cash is king. When you are running a business, cash is king. And being uh, in business and hanging on, even in bad times, has a value. So if I have something that is theoretically worth a million dollars, some IP, intellectual property, worth a million dollars, but my business right now needs $75,000 to make it through the next six months. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have that 75,000, I'm going out of business. It may make sense to take the thing that theoretically could generate licenses of over a million dollars and sell it right now for 75000 because, you know, if I'm not in business, then how the heck is that license going to be worth two cents? Forget the million. And so a lot of a lot of what I do with my clients is is business advice in a sense that that has a legal aspect to it where I'm basically saying, look, you know, you'll, you, you sometimes need to take a step back to take two steps forward and you to undersell, just hang on and, and, and be able to live another day. It's very similar to uh, real estate development. You know, the idea that sometimes you, you sell a parcel of real estate for, a third of what it really should be going for because you need the cash flow in order to keep yourself solvent and and to not go bankrupt. And so that's really the answer to your question is that there is a nuance, a context that you have to understand. And so in some instances, a sale will make sense, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the fact that it may end up, it, you may end up selling an asset for a tenth of what it actually theoretically 
in the perfect world would be worth. So dealing with uh, game developers for at least the last decade, um, what kind of unique issues that have you been running into with developers and game licenses in general? Yeah, so um, are you familiar with Steam? Okay, so <laughs> you guys are probably much more familiar with Steam than I am. Never heard. Uh, right. So uh, here we go. Um, you know, when that's a uh, just as, as an example um, of the kinds of things that we're we're looking at. You know, they have a site licensing program, and the idea is that um, you're having the right to use their site for your video game that you have developed, that you are getting revenue from, that sort of thing. Um, you're surrendering some intellectual property rights in that. You're surrendering, or at least say, let's say you're giving them the right to um, display, utilize some of your intellectual property. So that's, that's part of what you're doing. Um, you have to determine what user-generated content is being used, uh, how it's being uh, included, and all that sort of thing. Um, but the, the basic concept there is that it's your intellectual property, it's your game, it's going on their site or being used on your site to access their site. And the concept really is that there is licenses upon licenses upon licenses. It's basically a sandwich of licenses um, that, that, that don't start, by the way, with the developer. They start with the user. And so the user has a right, which then uh, is, is obtained from the developer, which is obtained from Steam, which might be obtained from, from a third party as well. So all of that needs to be um, pulled together. And so my, my experience with these um, uh, video games that need to, that need to be uh, subject to a site license, uh, a user license, is that they're extremely complicated. Um, each one of them is different and, um, and you, and you, the last thing you should be doing is just clicking on something and saying, I agree. So now that we established that having a lawyer at the beginning of the process is incredibly helpful and you know, that increases over time, right? The more, the, the more legal trouble you're in near the tail end of things, the, you know, the more you need a lawyer. So what, what are the questions that I should ask as a developer when I want to protect my own IP or game or, or anything? The game that you've created um, is, is what you're protecting in that game, the look and feel of that game, the feeling you have when you use it, or is what you're protecting unique elements such as a character who never existed before, and now that character is 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 something new, new name, new look, new clothing, new new functionality. There is a distinction in the law. I'm talking about the actual federal cases that are decided on this issue between those two concepts. Um, you know, if I if I'm playing Tetris, and then I have another game that is Tetris-like, but it's called something else. 
but it does all the same functions. It's not clear that I can protect that because I'm potentially infringing on on Tetris's rights. On the other hand, if I have uh, a shoot 'em up uh, where people are shooting guns at each other and killing each other, um, and they're all in World War II, and then I have another game in which they're doing the same thing, but they're in the wild, wild west. One game I have, you know, these characters who are doing this. I, another game I have another character, another set of characters doing it. I'm not necessarily protecting the intellectual property of shoot 'em ups, the intellectual property of somebody using guns and killing the enemy, because that's happening in both games. What I'm protecting are the characters that are different in both games and have a completely different history, characterization, even movement. Um, and so that distinction is absolutely critical. The other thing that you should be aware of is um, film rights. And when I say film rights, I know that might sound like a, like lunacy when you're dealing with a, an app or video game or, or something like that to say, well, why should I be worried about you know a major motion picture? And the answer is it's not always a major motion picture. It could be a television show. It could be uh, it could be a television show that's not on cable television, but being streamed right through YouTube and such. So the point is, all of those things create the um, the opportunity for new revenue streams. They create the opportunity to distribute merchandise around your characters and around uh, your um, your trademark Um, and. This, this creates agency relationships where you may want to have an agent who will uh, put that together for you who might have sub-licensees. So you might have, for example, one of the um, normal configurations that we see that your listeners should be aware of is if you have some, some intellectual property that's sort of a, a, a grouping of uh, characters, plot elements, um, uh, objects, other things like that, you could theoretically have one sort of agent that is the master agent that sort of is the one controlling all the licensing arrangements. So you have a master licensee, and then that licensee has sub-licensees. So they are over, over overseeing the way that, that your intellectual property is being marketed with T-shirts, and another sub-licensee is marketing um, the dolls. Another one is marketing um, virtual reality. Another one is doing all these things, but in Europe. Another one is doing all these things, but in Asia. And so the concept is that you have a hub and a spoke. So you have one hub for your agent, your your licensing agent, and then you have multiple spokes going out to sub-licensees. Um, that that model seems to work because you as a developer may not want to be getting into the granular issues of how many T-shirts were sold, you know, in, in Colorado. You may want someone else in the middle, albeit possibly taking or definitely taking some kind of royalty or some kind of commission or some kind of payment. But nevertheless, there's a value to that so that you're only dealing with one entity, right. not 20. Um, and then there's one other thing I want to mention, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this, which is 
if you're going to have arrangements where you are licensing your music mm-hmm. from the game, you're licensing characters for apparel, you are licensing, um, let's say, a, 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 ter- a term that some character shouts before he kills everybody, and that term now, every every 12-year-old kid wants to use that term on his T-shirt, and all these things are being licensed, you have to be aware of the possibility, maybe the probability, that there will be infringements among your different licensees, meaning you gave the guy the right to use the thing on the T-shirts, does that violate the, what the guy who's doing the dolls what rights he has or the guy who's doing the television show he has and how are these things um, being demarcated? How are you creating boundaries among the different licensees for using your intellectual property? If, If nobody's focused on that, there's a major problem because, and I tell clients this all the time, if you're not going to make any money on this, Mm -hmm. nobody's going to care. So you could, you could almost have any kind of contract right. because not, nobody's going to look at it, most likely. But if you suddenly have a hit and there's um, some real revenue coming in, then everyone's going to be looking at the fine language, not just of one contract, but all the contracts. And when they start seeing contradictions because they were negotiated separately at separate times with separate people, maybe even separate lawyers on your side, um, you're going to have a problem. And so the idea of coordination becomes key. It's, it's similar, ironically, to develop the development process. Um, if you're developing a website, developing an app, you have to have your scrum. If you don't have the scrum so that everybody's on the same page, everybody knows what everybody else is doing, it'll be disjointed and the whole thing will not come together. So each element will be fine, but they will not uh, interact properly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we covered kind of like how you can protect your own IP and possibly, you know, people violating your infringement. The reverse of that is equally as important. Like, how do you prevent, as a developer, accidentally, hopefully, in most cases, violating other people's intellectual property? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, this is another thing that I think is valuable for your for your listeners. Um, if you go on the United States Patent and Trademark Office website, uh, you will see a search functionality for uh, a trademark, and you you put your your saying or your lo- your your name, let's say, uh, into that search engine, and it will pull up a bunch of other trademarks um, that have been granted or, or, or in process, that sort of thing. So you'll get a result. Now, to your question, um, that's not enough because all you're doing is utilizing a government search engine for the government website that's only as good as whoever programmed that search engine. I'm not convinced that that's going to pick up everything. So the real answer to your question is when I have somebody come in and they want to use a name or they want to use a tagline, um, I have a private investigator that I hire um, who is uh, focused on intellectual property investigations. And they have separate databases that are not used normally by the public um, to do a far more robust search 
and then um, give me a report that that doesn't just give me a bunch of sites or a bunch of names that are similar to the name we want to use, but actually goes through it and says, here are the ones that I think are going to be problematic. And here are the ones that I don't think are going to be problematic. And by doing that, I, I get a better sense of when not to go forward with my application. What I don't learn, and this is a little subtle, but you know, think of it this way. I will learn when not to go forward with an application because it's likely to be infringing. What I won't learn is when to go forward with an application. In other words, the investigator can't tell me that I'm not infringing. Uh, what he can tell me is when I am infringing. Because when I am infringing, it's obvious, it's clear. I shouldn't go forward. But the question of if there's nothing that's that clear about the whole thing, and do I take my shot because there are some things that are arguably similar, but they're not really similar, that's a judgment call. Um, my point is that you really shouldn't be making that judgment call. It's very subtle, um, and it's based on experience, really, by just looking at a search engine on the USPTO website. So we were mentioning before about contracts right and how nowadays uh at least hopefully developers are wising up the importance of having a lawyer and having a more custom kind of contract besides the length right if i look at a contract oh 31 page is better than a 13 page what kind of provisions would you suggest a game developer look for when we're looking at a, a licensing arrangement that's a good question. Let me just, I'm going to give you, say, a few non-exclusive lists. So this is not everyone. But, uh, and, but I, do want to, I do want to answer your question with some specifics because it makes far, it's far more valuable for your audience to hear specifics than to just hear a general uh, answer to that. So setting aside the things we've already talked about, which is audit rights, revenue stream, how much you're being paid, what the definition of the intellectual property rights that are being given up are or being licensed are. Let's set that all aside. We've already talked about that. Let me give you some additional ones. Insurance. Um, the licensee, the one who is now using your intellectual property, really ought to have insurance so that if they start doing something, um, they're insured. And that insurance then should have a, a new endorsement for you that says you as the licensor are an additional insured. Um, so that you are you are able to share in the benefits of their policy. There is a concept in insurance law, and you know I'm going to every state's different, and all the anything we've talked about in this podcast you have to understand is general law, not specific to any one state. But but having having said that, there's usually a difference between being an additional insured, which means you share in the policy limits that are already there, and being a primary named insured which means that you literally have a, a second policy, which is your policy that the licensee is paying for. Licensee took out a policy for themselves. Now they're taking out the same policy for you. Um, next, indemnification. Indemnification means that if somebody does something that results in you getting sued, 
the person who did this thing to get you sued will pay your legal fees and pay your damages. That's generally what it means. So it's it's different than saying that they will um, pay your pay your damage for something they did wrong to you. This is where they precipitated someone else coming after you because of what they did. That's very important. Um, also, termination. Um, you know, there's a I, I do a tai chi, uh, and and one of the things they talk about in in the martial arts is you never walk into a room without knowing how to get out again, right? So I never, I'm not gonna enter into a contract unless I know how to terminate the contract. Because if you don't know how to terminate the contract, then you know, all you're, you're doing is driving with an accelerator and no brake. And you know, see, how, see how far you get doing that. Uh, what are the termination rights? Are they based on for cause? Are they just based on a 30-day termination window? That sort of thing. If they're for cause, by the way, you better define cause very, very precisely because that'll be the battle that will come up later. Next, confidentiality. Um, this is your license agreement. It is no one else's business. And you don't want it posted on the internet and you don't want this to be uh, out there. And you certainly don't want competitors to know about it, nor do you want the next licensee to know what you just agreed to, because you may want to negotiate a better deal next time. Um, and uh, the final one, and, and of course, there are many, many more, but I'm just going to give you one more because I don't want to I don't want to overload you is uh, jurisdiction. Um, I can tell you that most people do not understand the difference between a choice of law clause and a jurisdiction clause. And if you don't understand that, you're not serving yourself well. A choice of law clause means that if we have a dispute, this state's law will apply. That's not the same thing as a jurisdiction clause in which you say, if we have a dispute, here is how I get jurisdiction over you. Here's how I serve you. So you're consenting to be bound by the jurisdiction that we've chosen, which in this case might be New York, New York. And that's where this thing has to be litigated or ha or an arbitration has to take place. And even if you live in Singapore, when this thing has to be um, enforced, you nevertheless agree that you will be subject to the jurisdiction of New York. And that it will take place in New York um, and you define it with specificity. And that that is absolutely key. I've been in many situations where, you know, you're looking at a contract that that I didn't draft. You know, here you go back to the question you asked about just grabbing something off the Internet. How many times do you grab something off the Internet, a contract, and the contract will say the jurisdiction is Colorado? Well, yeah, Colorado for, for whoever drafted that, whatever that, that was about, but your people are in Florida and New York. So what the heck does that have to do with Colorado? Uh, go try to enforce that contract. Um, so that's kind of the way, th those, are, those are some of the main uh, provisions I would say should be in there. What would, the, uh, what would be your key advice to developers who are thinking about you know, forming a studio, making their IP? especially the ones that are already making a business are in it and have a hit on their hands. And like he said, like uh, contracts and all these legal ramifications really only apply to the ones that are about to generate money, right? Otherwise, yeah, it's great to be ready, always ready, but it's the ones that are about to be successful 
with a lot of people going after them that needs to be really careful with all this stuff. What key advice would you have for these? I actually have a, a key piece of advice um, that I think would help your audience. Um, if you're dealing with a tax issue, um, a legal issue, um, a negotiation point, and the person you're dealing with is saying things that you half understand, but you're not really understanding what they're saying and you don't understand the context of it, assume that there's a good reason for that. And the reason is not that you're stupid. That's not the reason. That They may want you to think that's the reason or you may skew to that, but that ain't the reason. The reason is they're not explaining it right. And so if you're talking to a lawyer, and that's kind of what we do, so I'll use that as an example, although it applies to all the professions, including medicine. Um, but let's talk about law for, for a moment. If you're talking to a lawyer, and after 10 minutes, you know he said a lot of words, and they seem to be big words, and you understand some of them, but you have no idea what he just said. If you say, okay, that sounds fine, you're doing yourself a disservice because it's his problem that he can't explain it in a way you understand, not your problem for not understanding it. He works for you. And if you if you don't see the world that way, you will find out what he's talking about and what he's mentioning and the thing he's warning you about, but you'll find it out once it's violated. And I'm not saying the lawyer is doing anything wrong. He's not trying to trick you. It's just he's explaining it the way he understands it. But there's a difference between explaining it correctly, which is one thing, and explaining it correctly in a way the other person understands. And so a lot of what I've learned in the first part of my career, when I was just starting out as a lawyer, what I learned was how to um, understand complex things in the law. But the second half of my career has really been about learning how to explain them in a way that people who don't have my training would understand. And that's a separate skill. That's the big piece of advice I would give you. Do not work with someone who is saying things that you cannot understand. Now, if you ask, if you ask them to explain it, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But then he has to explain it. And if you're still not getting it, then there's a problem. Um, that's, that's, that's one of the, and the other thing, I guess I'd give you one more piece of advice, which is um, your professional should be showing you empathy. If you're contacting an attorney, you're probably going through something that's difficult. Even if it's a good thing, like you have a great deal on your hands, it's probably making you crazy. It's probably something that's giving you a lot of agita, you're sleepless nights, you know, you're in uncharted territory. You need a lawyer who who is not just going to know the law, but is also going to hold your hand a little bit and and empathize with what you're going through. And here's why I say that. It's not it's not because you want a psychologist. If you want a psychologist, hire a psychologist. It's because it's about communication. If if someone is not capturing the essence of why you're doing what you're doing in the context of it, as opposed to just the legal ramifications of it, they're going to miss things. They're going to miss things that you're saying but not saying completely or saying but you're too insecure to kind of talk about it or saying but you're kind of fooling yourself and you're in denial whatever the issue is and so i would suggest that if you get the wrong feel for that interaction you probably are onto something and you should you should take it seriously 
Man, Gary, thank you so much for all the wisdom and advice that you dropped on the podcast today. And I, I myself have learned a lot and I know that the audience has learned a lot. And there's one last thing I'm going to ask of you, if you don't mind. Sure. All right. So on this podcast, we play a little game called the Fast Five. It's a great way to get to know the person who's uh, joining us. And so you being a guest, you know, you're just like everyone else. You got to go through this game. Sure. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you five rapid fire questions and I need five rapid fire answers. Are you ready? I am. All right. Question number one. What is your favorite game that you played as a child? Oh, as a child? Chess. Oh, nice. Good one. <laughs> Question number two. Name a fictional character you wish you could have a beer with. Oh, that's come on. That's so easy. Captain James Tiberius Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Question number three. What's an intellectual property that you wish that you owned? Um, I I wish I owned the um, the right Mm. to Google. I think that that it has transformed um, the world uh, in a, in a way that that I am uh, shocked at, at, at how many ways it has its tentacles have sort of enveloped every aspect of, of not only business but but personal life, and I wish that I I could be part of that. I think it, it would have been exciting to see that sort of emerge. That's a good one. Question number five: Ice cream or frozen yogurt? Frozen yogurt, but but watch the sugar content. That's all I have to say. Okay. (laughs) All right. And our last question comes from Teddy Bergsman. He's our guest from last week. He asks you, where do you see the game industry being in 10 years? Uh, Absolutely. Virtual reality. uh, No question about it. What we're finding is that augmented reality seems to have a leg up on virtual reality. And I think there are some obvious reasons why in terms of the hardware necessary, which I don't think is is completely there yet for the consumer. So I think that uh, virtual reality is the future. Augmented reality is the next step. Fantastic. And, and we're seeing that with our clients. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I actually have one last question, but it's not part of the fast five. You did great. That was a good time, by the way. Uh, we need one question from you to ask our next week's guest. It could be about anything game related or game development related. Yeah, I guess, I guess the, the the question that that I would ask is, um, what do you think uh, is the convergence between uh, major motion pictures and video games? Oh, that's a good one. And the reason I ask that is that there's so many ways in which video games are being turned into major motion pictures. It just seems to be a movement. I'd like to know where they think that's going. Okay, I will ask that next week. So thank you very much. Gary, I have one last thing for you, though, since you've won. Uh, At this point in the podcast, Brandon and I usually step away from the mic, and we give you an opportunity to talk directly to the audience to promote or to shout out or raise awareness for something you're involved in, something you believe in or care about. So without further ado, uh, the floor is yours. Well, hopefully this isn't the part where everybody clicked off when they heard about promote. So please stay on for 30 more seconds. Um, my website is uh, gdnlaw.com. And my email is gdn at gdnlaw.com. Please visit my website. Um, we we have a lot of resources on there that I think will help developers and kind of frame some of these issues. And, um, you know, if anyone wants to reach out to me, please uh, email is the best way to get me. Uh, you know, all I can tell you is that I think your audience is on the side of the future. 
Uh, I think that the digital world and people who understand the digital world are going to solve the major problems of our era. And that's not just video games. That's environmental issues and issues of war and issues of uh, how people get along and communicate um, and overthrow dictatorships and all sorts of things that I think are integrally related to where your audience is. Um, and so I have tremendous admiration does. Um, my son is a developer uh, who develops e-commerce websites and is in your world. Um, and I just want to say that I have a lot of respect for not only what you do, but the positive ways it is going to change uh, worldwide culture. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Oh, this is good. I'm over here learning while I'm supposed to be doing this podcast. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, I have to say, uh, I had a great time. I had a great day. Thanks a lot, Gary. It's been very educational. This is Brandon Pham. I'll see you guys next week. Take care, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.